You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are so glad that you are here. We are going to have a great conversation with one of our favorite podcasters, Bruce Carlson of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Um, one of I, one of our favorite podcasts. Uh, Reinhold, the first time I said, yeah, we're having Bruce on, he went, really? So uh, he's been very excited <laughs> about this, as have I. So uh, Bruce... Tell us a little bit about your podcast. Give us a little right. shameless self-promotion right off the gate here. Will do. Will do. Keep it under, uh, you know, like a minute, not 10 minutes, you know? I know you get some of these people like I'm no good <laughs> at uh, self-promotion. <laughs> um, no, I love talking about it. it. It is essentially history of the politics of today. So bringing context to today's politics and all of our issues. Um, I mean, there's so many things happening now that when I started the podcast in 2006, which is very much when I started it. We've been doing it since then, trying to talk about historical stories. I'll often talk about things and wait for things to happen. I don't always do like today's um, today's issues, uh, you know, a very today issue, you know, every time. But uh, usually they catch up. You know, a couple of years ago, I did one on uh, on uh, student loans and, you know, I waited a while for it to come as an issue and then published it. You know, so there's things like that. We've had something very similar to that, where it's like, we don't really need to do the migrant border crisis episode again. We just rerun the 2018 episode. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Why Why are young men committing violence? Let's pull out that episode. Yeah, so our back catalog is very similar in that that respect when you cover current events. And it's like the, the Trump indictment stuff. You know, we're not trying to be first. We haven't done the episode on it yet. We're trying to be good. <laughs> um, yes. And I, don't, I, I think that, you know, sometimes helps but i uh i we're having you on reinhold you're the one that set this up what do you want to talk about and why why did you have the idea for this particular episode well a couple of reasons one was the the six-part um fall of ussr series with with the addendums added on at the end which i really liked um i thought it was very enlightening especially in time in, in today's time with what's going on uh, with Ukraine, because I think a lot of what happens in that time frame, as, as Bruce explained very well, uh, led to them going to a Putin, which then led to you know where we're at it now, and and how Ukraine kind of played a part in the fall of of Russia too, and how that all kind of plays through. And a lot of people, I think, a lot of Americans just don't get a lot of the um, kind of the Russian society impact into um what's going on and we kind of try to put our own spin on things as we would see it as if it were happening here and, and i think um this series really does a good job of highlighting that so, and uh, i just kind of want to hear more about how that comes about what and, and maybe what bruce thinks about what you think about um how that how that involves what's going on today yeah, so we're not going to sure. go super in-depth because we want you to go listen to uh, the show. I mean, obviously, how many good. total hours, <laughs> it's, uh, right? It's about seven seven or eight hours, so there'll be no way. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's sunny. It's story. like the first sunny spring day here, so we're not doing seven hours today. <laughs> uh, but give us an idea of like what it took to produce seven hours on the fall of Russia. I mean, um, so this is a project that... Um, was started about 10 years ago in notebooks. And I can recall being on a flight in Atlanta and the, the plane got you know, delayed and we were on the tarmac. Thankfully, I finagled my way in first class at my seat, but I was rewriting and copying from notebooks back then. And I just never got a chance to podcast it. And, uh, you know, listener, I remember talking to one of the listeners, like, you got to do it, you got to do it. I don't know. And so I spent most of last year doing kind of extra work so to explain, like my history could beat up your politics, as we said, is kind of like the the somewhat of the events happening now and a little bit of historical perspective. And so I'm doing a lot of quick topics. And so many years back, I decided like, well, Bruce, if you keep doing this, you, it's almost like swimming against a really rough tide. You're going to get a little intellectually dumb if you don't take on some big topics and do those as well. Because all you're going to be doing is little snippets. And and I do a lot of that. And you have to. And you have to. But you can't go in depth if you're doing, say, like a weekly or biweekly podcast on uh, 
on um, just today's current events. So the Soviet Union was one of them. Ronald Reagan was another. I did a very controversial president, but a very misunderstood as well. Did a did a series well back on that. Um, uh, Arc of Commerce. I did a series on business history uh, because that's not been really done, especially by someone who's not a total, you know, um, just pro-business point of view, looking at everything, you know, and um, so those are the topics, and Soviet Union was up, and the fall of the Soviet Union in particular, but as we tell the story of the fall of the Soviet Union, which really happens, amazingly, for for a system that has thousands of people in the Communist Party behind it you know it's 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 larger than the saudi royal family i think that's two thousand people this communist party is thousands of thousands of people for it to fall in what turned out to be three or you could really say four days um safe to say the four days uh in 1991 is incredible and amazing so as i tell the story of those four days we're inserting the story of the recent mostly the recent Soviet Union and the Soviet Union in the 70s and 80s. I kind of kept it there with a couple references to Stalin things, because how can you not talk about the Gulag and Stalin and Brezhnev and everything else? But um, we we intersplice the story of the Soviet Union through the story of those four days. I mean, there's two episodes on day one. Um, so it was just the only way to to do it, to have, um, I started trying to do an episode a day and it's just too many events <laughs> going on in Moscow streets and, and, and everything like that. And yeah. Uh, we tend to think of it as, uh, you know, a, a, a week long event and the fall of the Berlin wall. And that's how the, so with the Berlin mm-hmm. wall came, what was it months or years before that? Like it was let, 89. So it was two years. Yeah. yeah I mean, about. it was a long process, but like, mm-hmm. When when we look at the root causes of why the Soviet Union crumbled, what are what are some of the first cracks? I've heard Gorbachev say Chernobyl was one of them. Reagan takes mm-hmm. credit for the mm-hmm. arms race. Like, what are some of those top line things that really led to the fall of the Soviet Union? Yeah, I find it difficult, especially doing this, to attribute too much to that arms race. Indeed, it appears. Uh, I share the view of some scholars that every time we escalated the arms race, it seemed to give the Soviet conservatives, which they had, more of a leg up on people like Gorbachev than the other way um, around. And you have some of those actors, including Gorbachev himself, directly saying it. When, When the West fails to support Gorbachev and peace initiatives, that's one of the things that emboldens uh, the, the, the Gang of Eight, the coup plotters, and um, Kryuchkov, who was the head of the KGB, probably being, I, I put him as the leader, but they're really, this is part of the problem of this whole, those week's events is no real leader. They're all a bunch of lieutenants, but he's probably the chief of the lieutenants in any case. But to go to the larger causes, yes, yeah, so um, terrible economy during this time, you know, it's time to bury some macaroni, it's time to bury some bread, the types of things you hear on Moscow streets in 1990. Gorbachev launches these economic reforms, but the system isn't really ready for it. So you have people that have immense shortage of supply, larger than people had remembered even in the key communist Brezhnev times of the 70s, uh, when oil was oil economy was fueling the Soviet Union, which is part of the problem in the 80s as well, is that oil prices drop. Well, the Soviet Union as much as it says it hates the West, is getting financing its little system from um, from oil revenues sold to foreign countries. And that's what make makes the communist dream become possible to the extent it is in the 70s to even fund like their social programs. That drops in the 1980s. Oil prices drop and they're a producer. So that's a problem there. Uh, Gorbachev Institute's a very foolish um, prohibition really, really close to that. It's not an absolute prohibition, but you can only get vodka from the state stores, heavily taxed, big, long lines. People are drinking all kinds of chemicals that they can find and selling. There's a huge black market for alcohol. But those taxes fund the Soviet Union government. So that's part of the problem, too. You're right, and Gorbachev's right to cite Chernobyl as the real television event that the government was lying to people. Oddly enough, it helps 
the leader of the government, Gorbachev, in a way, because he's introducing reforms. But if for a lot of people at the same time, they're also blaming Gorbachev, who, who lied in some cases about the response to Chernobyl and the uh, magnitude of the disaster. Uh, and and it's also the battles between liberals and conservatives that in releasing certain um, uh, certain um, like Sakharov and certain human rights um, prisoners in the Soviet Union and then them taking part being people's deputies in releasing free speech essentially yeah, the gla- um, is it the glasnost reforms? I mean, how you glasnose, always, you always yeah. we, we, tw- we I think those of us who are younger, I'm 39, so I barely remember the Soviet Union. I was alive during it, but I was <laughs> like in first grade when it fell, right? So you don't have an understanding of the complexities of this. But, you know, so people my age tend to think of the Soviet Union um as North Korea where it's very closed off, very shut down, right. you know, total controlled society i doubt that's probably true now that i'm a little older and wiser uh but you know there's the american myth or truth i don't know you tell me that glasnost and the opening of the economy the opening of society allowing in blue jeans and all all that good (laughs) stuff american society infiltrating with rock and roll is what collapsed the soviet union how much does that contribute to it i mean it's Look, what it is, is like many things in history, it's multivariate. We love to, in textbooks, to name one solution, you know, Lincoln freed the slaves. You know, th- these are the textbooks. I mean, it's not even really the history teacher textbook's fault. They, they try, but it's it's how we remember things, you know, one thing. But th- these problems are multivariate, and so it is with the Soviet Union. But there's a lot there in Glasnost. So with Glasnost, we, um, we think of that as... Um, openness or free speech as a translation, but the actual word is publicity. So it's perestroika's reform, and that's the economic part, and glasnost is free speech, publicity. See, it's a top-down driven reform. So um, the idea was always in the, in, the, in the Soviet leadership, which had a range of liberals and conservatives, reformers, kind of your Soviet, maybe a little bit earlier than baby boomers, baby boomer type people, um, children of the 60s, say, children of the 50s and 60s, who were, you know, coming of age post-Stalin, um, had a lot of reform-minded. There were some reform movements that occurred in the early 70s that were kind of clamped down on by Brezhnev, and then there was Gorbachev comes to power as a kind of reformer, a little more establishment reformer, if you ask me, but um, so his idea is, and I always was, even going back to Andropov, who was the head of the KGB under Brezhnev and later briefly became leader of the Soviet Union, was that if you if people are free to speak, we can root out some corruption. The problem with the system, system's great. We just got to root out that corruption. There's people stealing. There's people shirking their duty. There's people that are drinking vodka or in the subway when they should be at work in the factory. All we got to do is have publicity. And in, in another way, we might say this is eyes and ears or the very American common, if you see something, say something. That's really what Glasnost sort of is. But like anything, it's a snowball and it starts expanding and expanding. And the KGB initially really supports Gorbachev's rise from a lot of what we see. And even uh, Perestroika and Glasnost, after all, and Dropoff is, had done some of this um re, you know in the 70s there's a magazine called argumenti and facti that's sort of released from its normal bounds and people are talking it's a kind of letters to the editor uh magazine so you have a little elements of this but gorbachev accelerates it and eventually it you know you start having people criticizing gorbachev and criticizing the kgb and criticizing the soviet way of life there's a famous champion weightlifter who was the 1960 Olympic champion from the Soviet Union, who kind of showed that communism could could rule the world. He was a hero, and he speaks out on television as one of the people's deputy against the KGB, against, you know, he calls Gorbachev a, a petty tyrant, and he calls also calls the government incompetent. And people are seeing these messages, and, and the system as it is, 
They're thinking it's going to improve the system, but that free speech really starts to erode it. Uh, Western genes, Western music, yeah, that's a part of it. A lot of that had started to come in, and it was unstoppable. with Transistor radios in the 60s and 70s, genes very popular. It was also popular to make things that looked like Western genes, but you know, I heard a story of even something as simple as like a plastic bag from the West. You know, someone might covet that in Georgia or uh, Armenia, you know, or, or in the streets of Moscow in the way we might treasure like something, a, a piece of jewelry or something. Just to have anything from the West was great. Uh, that may have not alone eroded things, but certainly it, it, it didn't, um, it probably didn't help from their perspective. I don't think that the Soviet Union, once you get away from the absolute Stalinist period, after Stalin dies, Khrushchev has a bit of a thaw, a bit of an opening in society. I don't think it ever was North Korea, particularly in the time period that I was focusing on, which is the late 70s and the 80s. I think you have more openness. I think particularly the younger generation is very like, there's a little bit of laughing at the society. There's a little bit, you know, some of the, you know, I, there's there's one, a lot of what I did in this podcast is pick up comments from Russians, either through novelists or like Henrik Smith, the journalist, I should say, who goes to Russia and picks up in the 70s and 90s and picks up interviews or people writing on Quora living in Russia today talking about their times or other people who had blogs. You know, there are a couple of blogs I captured back in 2010 and had in my notebook that aren't on the Internet anymore, which I thought was great. You know, it's a piece of history now of uh, people ex explaining how things were. And you just you hear things. Uh, you hear what people thought of Gorbachev. Usually not very much. It's admired in the West, not so much in the not so much uh, in Russia. And you hear a lot of other things um, and takes on it. But there was a lot more um, talking with a little bit. I think there's one older Russian who said, well, the young people know not to tickle the goose. There's a little bit of that. Like you had to watch. Think about it like being at work and you have HR, but the HR is more like the government. And they have um, uh, there's a there's a first department in every factory. And that's really responsible to the government, not to not just like a corporate HR. And a lot of people are reporting things way more than I don't know. In some companies, I think we probably feel like we have the HR is like the KGB, but people are saying things about other workers and stuff. But think about that accelerated like ten times. Yeah, yeah. have you yeah. have you seen Chernobyl on HBO? I haven't seen the whole thing. You know, of course, I study that issue a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a great great show but it you know it just sort of shows the the malintent of bureaucracy it, whether intentional or unintentional where it just it's it's cold and unfeeling and we're just protecting our behinds and we're afraid of the upper echelons of the government and you know whereas Gorbachev wants to be told kind of what's going on but not in the wrong way right well, uh, when people started throwing eggs at him at the parade <laughs> when they did the victory parade in 1990 I think that's when he realized they could not even visit Lenin's tomb, which the leader of the Soviet Union would do every year. But there were, now there were protests in Moscow over the bread shortages. And that, that's where I think the moment where he starts to go a little rightward and or wiggles a bit between left and right. And he's between the years 89 and 91, he's really in a kind of dance. I really think 89, the year that the Berlin Wall falls is a much more important year to focus on uh even though the coup happens in 1991 well can i can i stop you there just to set yes. it up so people have an understanding can you give us an idea of the structure of the soviet union who are some of the players and levels that you're talking about briefly mm -hmm. and then what happened with the berlin wall falling and the warsaw pact dissolving which mm -hmm. led to 1991 i think maybe sure. some of that context just for the people who just I don't even know who Gorbachev is. <laughs> You're right, who, who, right. What the heck are we talking about here? <laughs> yeah, very important. Very important. So the Soviet Union uh, is obviously from 1917 to 1991. It is a country. It is an enormous country because even though some people say, oh, that's Russia now. Well, no, Russia lost almost half its territory, if you look at it that way, with the loss of the whole Soviet Union. 
It was an enormous country, uh, more population than, than anywhere, more size than anywhere. It stretched into um, the Central Asia with republics like uh, Kyrgyzstan and um, um, Kazakhstan and into um, the Baltic states like Estonia and uh, countries that are now countries now. And they're, they play a key part in the whole thing. So you got to think of this very large country. The leadership of the country is interesting, a little different than today. But think about it like this. If we only had the Democratic Party, all right, and somebody, somewhere somebody's cheering, somewhere somebody's uh, vomiting right now when I say that. If we only had somewhere the Democratic Party. Somewhere someone's saying they're all the same anyways, and we have one state of singular control. Someone's saying right. that and, that, and that is actually a great way to think about the, Soviet, the way the Soviet structure is, because you only have one party, and they, and they abolished all parties upon the, the real completion of the Soviet project in the, in the early 20s, when they had finished the uh, revolution there. And uh, brought in all the different repub socialist republics that are were allegedly independent, like places like Kazakhstan, but really uh, responsible to Moscow. So you have the leadership of the Communist Party as almost a government. You have the political leadership, which is certainly a government. So like the Politburo, this is the the group that runs the country, and there's a Supreme Soviet. And they that went is, through, did they go through sham elections to be like president of the Soviet Union? Yeah, there were a lot of elections, uh, not for president, so the president's appointed, but for all the deputies and all the positions. There actually were a lot of elections in Soviet Union, and, and which, strangely enough. Did they have, like in Russia, I know it's a federation, right? So there's like mm -hmm. states within Russia now. Did Russia specifically, because Russia and the Soviet Union are not the same thing. You know, you had all right. the satellite states within the Warsaw Pact. You had Russia. It was just the most dominant figure. But it was. did Russia at that time even have governorships and, and like, local elections all the way down, too? And, yes. and were those – I assume they were not open, free, and fair. They weren't open in, in the sense that no one was running against uh, people in the, uh, in, the, um, in the Soviet Union. There is an interesting thing that goes on. So, I mean, the answer to the question, though, is absolutely they did have those things. They had the local. Sometimes those people in the hinterlands and in Siberia and like that became little chiefdoms, little like um, very. In fact, it was really difficult for people like Gorbachev or even Putin when he first came to power to dislodge some of those very powerful local people who had their factories and their, their power base and, and things like that. But no, there would be uh, with one party. You, you do have, there are a lot of elections in the Soviet Union, and you do have things like talks where people will, will ha they have to like sit there and respond to voters and things like that. It's just if somebody gets too cranky, I've heard stories where, say, the late 70s and going into the 80s, where if people complain too much at some of these meetings, they might find that they're, they've lost their job or lost their promotion. Something's in their characteristic file, you know. So, so it's not exactly as great as here, but they do have um, an interesting thing that, 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 that happens is, you know how like on eBay or Uber, you have a rating system from like one to five or, or, or whatever it is, but you really, with, with eBay, it's like a hundred, but you really have to get super high. You're just not allowed to get anything low. And that was kind of happening in the Soviet Union. So if they did have a vote and somebody got a really low vote, they may not get nominated by the party again because they still have to worry a little bit about popular opinion. But it's not like you had three different parties. They were approaching that right up to the point of the coup. That was getting to be a real thing. We're going to take away the Communist Party's dominant role or, or exclusive role in the government and, um, and open it up to some, some other parties. And the pressure for that was coming from left and right who wanted reform and also like more militaristic um, parties that would be more aligned with KGB and military and, and things like that. Because in some cases, they felt the communists were too um, liberal or reformist, you might say. So you have like a party government. You have the actual government. In the person of Mikhail Gorbachev, he holds that dual role. So he's general secretary of the Communist Party, and he's also the president at the at the time of the coup at least they established the position of president of the soviet union uh so he has those two things it's also important to, to talk about in the soviet union that there's almost a third 
And there's sort of a fourth and fifth to think about. And you brought up a sixth. So there's the local government might be the sixth. The fifth might be the Supreme Soviet, which is kind of their Congress. And you might say Supreme Court all in one, you know. Uh, and um, then there's... Um, then there's the KGB and the secret police. So this is not just an incidental thing that like someone like a Gorbachev orders around, even though that they can, they have their independent political activities. They're really a structure of society that's supposed to be a little independent from the government in case something goes wrong. You know, someone described it as a time bomb within the Soviet structure. So they have, uh, so they have all of these elements, including all the Republic governments but mostly up until the late 80s, those governments are pretty subservient to Moscow. And so even when people say, you know, Russia's just one of the republics in the Soviet Union, it was very dominant. Um, and Russian, ethnic Russians really were a big part of the government. Ukraine actually is part of the Soviet Union. That's important to say here. And very influential. Almost, you know, a good number of the leaders, Khrushchev's one of them, you know, come from Ukraine. Uh, so it was always very powerful, huge population, huge economy. And that's part of the conflict you're seeing today. Yeah, that's part of why Holodomir happened in the 30s. It was to take it's the breadbasket mm. of Europe. It, if you control the food supply, then you control a lot. I don't know. It just sounds really weird to me, Reinhold. So there's a, an overarching government that seems to control the lower governments largely through funding. There's a spying apparatus, and there's a one-party state. I just amazing. It's just just so different than us. Uh, Reinhold, go ahead if if you want to jump in here. I'd love for you to ask Bruce a question because I I told Reinhold I said, listen, I haven't listened. I know you've listened to all of them. I want you to lead the conversation. We're 27 minutes in, and Reinhold has not asked one yet, which is Bruce's standard operating procedure here on the show. SOP. Yeah. Well, I mean, what I like, uh, a couple things I was interested in, and I guess kind of at that point now, I'd like to talk about the the coup attempt and and its failure. Um, uh, Kind of a two-part question. Who was getting cooed, Reinhold? Um, so they were, as I understand it, they were taking um, the the Soviet were trying to basically replace Yeltsin, and by saying that Gorbachev was sick and kind of take over, right? So they were trying to take over. Yeah, the well, government. the the uh, the Soviet Union was was about to develop something closer to the say the EU, where these republics would now be. This is after the Berlin fall, after East Germany. This um, is 91, right? This is 91. There's The discussion started in 90 um, of let's get Yeltsin, uh, Krovchek, the, the Ukrainian leader, and I forget the name of the guy in Belarus at the time, but they're all interested in being, um, they're not yet for independence, so they're going to work out a deal with Gorbachev to form a, more like an EU, a much where they are going to have a lot more autonomy. And one of the key things is KGB now under this new union that they're going to union treaty, they're going to sign KGB becomes like our closer to our FBI. Cause I mean, to your point, I, I know it, it always feels like I have, uh, there's this woman that, that I quote a lot of uh, Evgenia Albats who study the KGB intensely. And she just stops talking to people who compare the FBI to the KGB. It's just, the, the 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 depth of integration integration with society with the powers that they had and the untouchableness of it was just so much but they wanted to get it more like RFBI where it's like oh it can do some things it can surveil people and stuff but you're going to be under our instruction as republics now not this crazy independent thing that we don't even know what you're doing kind of thing and um and and that you want to have say over who's going to be the next president in our countries you know no we're not going to do that so the more subservient uh, KGB and just more autonomy and um, he goes to Gorbachev you know he's all under a lot of strain and he wants to go to Crimea where the president's one of the president's palaces are it's a really nice place um, and in Foros and um, they. At that time, he he gets a visit on the door. He gets a, a visit from his. It's kind of late at night, and he gets um, uh, approached by a security team, and they're like, "Mr. President's been here to see you." I was like, 
I'm the president and the general secretary of the Soviet Union. Like nobody comes to see me. I didn't invite them. Who's he's like, I'm sorry, you have to see them. They're our boss. And so they say, Mr. President, we want you to sign this you hand over your power. He, he says, no, I won't be part of it. They blockade him, cut off his communications, goes to pick up the phone, can't pick up the phone. So now Gorbachev is not harmed physically yet, at least, but he is uh, cut off. And then they blockade the airport. They blockade any communications. They blockade him physically and with his family. Um, they're, the family's pretty scared and concerned. They know what's happened in Soviet history before, even though the USSR is in what they call their vegetarian days. So that's the that's the events. And then over in Moscow, there's a gang of eight people, significant players in the Soviet system, including the head of the KGB, not surprisingly leading it, who are announced that they've formed a government. They've got the vice president. So they've got some form of constitutionality, but it's not they're not really following the right procedure. And and that's announced on a Monday morning. What did did Yeltsin play a role in that too? No, Yeltsin uh, is Yeltsin was was part of the um, was going to sign that Union Treaty along with Belarus and um, Ukraine, and they probably get most of the others along with it. But um, to form a new, if they had those three, they could essentially form a new union and still have Gorbachev as president of the Soviet Union, but a weaker Soviet Union. And um, and a friendlier one for the West, likely. Um, Yel- so, Yeltsin Yel- tried, yeah, oh, he go got, ahead. Uh, barricaded into his offices too, right? Yeah. Uh, so he's at his dacha, which is his you know vacation house outside of Moscow after he had been down in Kazakhstan organizing, and he's about to go back into Moscow, and then he learns of the coup. There are KGB at his dacha now for reasons that are still a mystery. And a lot of speculation and things like that, of course, just every aspect of the story. But for reasons that are still a mystery, I tend to think it's because the coup was they didn't want bloodshed and they didn't. They figured um, they could control certain things. They also realized Yeltsin hates Gorbachev. They're rivals, even though they're both like on the reform side, ostensibly. As I said earlier, Gorbachev's more your establishment reform and Yeltsin's more rebellion and populist and and Gorbachev is not populist at this time most people dislike him some some like him really like in the city of Moscow and people in government and stuff might like Gorbachev but the overwhelming you know Soviet uh, citizenry there's not high opinions I have lots of quotes in my podcast about comparing him to the to an idiot and the uh, you know um, a Cossack and things Don Cossack and things like that but uh, yeah, so Yeltsin is um, he he a mistake definitely made by the coup plotters. He is not detained. Now he might have been and might have narrowly escaped, as we talk about in the podcast. But he decides to to take his car and go into Moscow and go through what are hanging out like in the trees outside his dacha, KGB agents and a larger force than the security he has. He tries to go to the Kremlin. He wants to meet with these guys. I mean, Yeltsin doesn't takes no prisoners, as we'll see later. You know, he is a very brash. He was fighting like hell with Gorbachev. That may have, as I said, that may have been one of the reasons the coup plotters didn't think they had to lock him up because um, he might have. They thought he might have delighted that Gorbachev was a prisoner essentially now and being removed. But uh, they were mistaken in that. He wanted to talk to them. He called it illegal. He goes to the Russian White House, White House, which is his place of business. And to your point earlier about these local republics, did they have a lot of power? That Russian White House building was essentially like a paper stamp, like a government, you know, we might think the office of the treasurer, not even the treasury, but the treasurer today or something like this routine business office. And um, it's a very nice building. Uh, has a kind of like jet design because it was made to be an a- airplane company office at first. But, um, you know, no one ever thought of it as a historic place. In fact, no protesters are there at the beginning. There's no one's thinking about protesting there. They're in Red Square and they're being pinned in by tanks as they're protesting. Um, very small group, too. Yeltsin goes to the Russian White House and he does end up became, becoming a form of a prisoner there because he he won't leave for the next few days. 
So how does uh, so let's just set this in time. So the Berlin Wall falls in eighty nine. This is ninety one when the coup attempt hap- happens. Mm. the The Soviet Union um, does not dissolve from this. It, how, how does the coup actually come to an end? Uh, how how do they end up getting out of this jam? Gorbachev, Yeltsin, and everybody who was uh-huh. sort of like, let's keep the union going together. Yeah, I mean the short uh, answer is because again, it's 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 a six part series, and there's so much. So I so I have two episodes on day one. That's the Monday when people wake up and hear on the radio that there's a new government. You know, in Soviet fashion, it's you get a variety of reactions. Some people are like, "Good, good, that Gorbachev guy needed to finally they'll do something." Bread on and the shelf, you know. Yeah, Swan <laughs> yeah. Lake is playing, and they play yeah, Swan I think Lake. I, there was one. There's one thing in there where you were talking about. How the there was a journalist who was upset that he hadn't been shut down the day of the, the oh, morning yes. of the coup. <laughs> yes, there's a newspaper um, uh, investig in, in, uh, in uh, I think I believe it's Investia. Um, they they uh, yeah they're upset they're not shut down and in fact the printers then are the ones that end up saying we'll refuse to print this paper if we're not allowed to say everything we want, it's but like, all the, it's like comedian. There's one comedian who has puppets that I won't name. Who's like, I'm doing the uncanceled tour. I haven't been canceled yet. Please cancel me, please, please dear God. <laughs> I, I need the social proof. It. <laughs> Absolutely. Cause some of the players include, I mean, certainly Yeltsin is the ultimate canceled person, right. That comes out of this crisis, you know, as a hero and a leader of a government after that, whether he, where if he had to stand up on his own merits as a, and run as a candidate and explain how well he would do and stuff, it might have been a little tougher. Sort of like kicking two legislators out of a legislature, and then all of a sudden (laughs) they're going to be congressmen now. (laughs) We never learned. They created some heroes, no doubt. I mean, a similar similar thing. Now, think about that and take Tennessee and put it into the Soviet Union where people cannot trust any information they get. I know. It's true here too, but we have so many sources, podcasts and Twitter and things and, 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 and people and things like that. But um, think about it where people aren't free to speak in broad ways. You know, they're, they're Soviet unions, like not North Korea. That's a great line to draw. It's they're free to speak in their kitchens. They're free to speak in rooms. They're, they're even starting to do a little more outside as you get to 89 and you have certain clubs and groups and things. There's a memorial group that's going to start to talk about the Gulag prior to uh, this coup. They they start up during the perestroika period, which is really after '86 when Gorbachev launches his perestroika and Glasnost reforms. Um, so you really do have um, uh, it, and that's what's seen in this coup and why it unravels. Because if they were North Korea, some of the actions that uh, unraveled what the coup leaders did. They just would have shot a person or two and taken care of it. And, you know, there was some fear of that. It wasn't like that wasn't on people's minds. Um, Kryuchkov later, when he's uh, the leader of this August 1991 coup, he, when he's interviewed, he has no regrets. And he said, if I ever did it again, uh, I would have detained Yeltsin. I didn't say I'd shoot him or anything. But I'd detain him. I would have detained many other people. And we would have isolated the opposition better. And that's really what they don't do. Um, Kryushkov, incidentally, becomes a trusted. He's the boss of Putin during the time we're speaking. Well, not directly, because officially Putin had quit the KGB. But there's also a theory that you never quit the KGB. So Yeah, wasn't he a taxi driver, maybe, in St. Mont- <laughs> Petersburg? He had to do a lot of things. He, he had to do a lot of things, yes, for a short period to raise, to uh, to work. But there was always this feeling that he all of a sudden got this government job in St. Petersburg and people who had worked in the municipality and everything were, who is this man behind the desk? And others were like, he's the KGB guy. You have to right. have one in every town. And he was doing all the foreign dealings. So he was he was dealing with um, getting you know food from Germany to the St. Petersburg government, which Perestroika had released to some of those type of um, responsibilities to the localities. And so Putin's in charge of that. There's definitely some stories of missing money. We could do a whole Again, podcast on control that. the food. You control everything. <laughs> we'll talk about Putin in a moment. But uh, yeah, so so the coup fails. But how many how much longer does the Soviet Union last? Just the rest of the year. 
just the rest of the year. The, the coup fails to, to, to quickly deal with it just because the biggest mistake they make is that they allow the television to show Yeltsin on a tank. They allow a reporter to give information um, on the – even though it's only a few minutes that they're allowed, they're free enough to allow a little bit of discussion. And there's some – between the gang of eight, these coup plotters, they're all a bunch of lieutenants. They lose the confidence of a lot of the people below them. Almost, and, and, it was almost and, immediately, wasn't the that speech and the announcement mm-hmm. the 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 vice president gave was just a terrible and well the shaking hands his hands are are trembling during the uh, press conference so that's one thing they point to. There's also a reporter who gets up who's yep. not supposed Dylan to reporter. be there. She sneaks through, and um, she asks a question like, "Is isn't what you're doing close to Pinochet?" Which in the you know that that's they they flip out, but. It, it brings it up and then other reporters start asking questions and they just didn't control the press conference well. And uh, all of these things add up. You know what, though? They still probably could have cleaned up if they were a little more organized and stormed the White House. And they just yeah, never do. If what, what it sounded like to me when I was listening, if they had had a little bit more resolve or mm. say we're, we're in it, we're going to go the whole way. It's like they kept trying to write a line or, or keep it, keep it. Pulled yes. back a little bit, thinking that it would fall their way. I think it's important uh, for understanding this, the Soviet Union. And if you're like a fan of the TV show Americans, he kind of tries to, Weisberg tries to show some of this that, you know, it wasn't North Korea. I mean, these people, there's a lot of disagreement, there's a lot of discussion, but it had a structure of, there was still this, this structure that was not democracy totally either. And um, I don't think they wanted bloodshed. And I think that was it. They weren't, for instance, like the CCP and Tiananmen Square. That was just like shut it down. Although I will tell you, Krejcikov later uh, felt that he should have been, and he felt that he could have starved out the Russian White House. But they don't, and eventually the the coup plotters fail, and they realize they're going to get arrested, and they go to Gorbachev to try to beg his forgiveness. He throws them out, and then they're all locked up, and the rest is... And then, to your point, it's just the rest of the year that the Soviet Union lasts, but it's always pretty much known that something's going to happen here. Gorbachev thinks, like, this is great. I'm going to be the leader of a freer Soviet Union or something, implement more programs. I mean, just incidentally, he died last year, Gorbachev. And his one of his last interviews, he's like, I just wish I would have given people some more, put more bread in the budget. Like, never, always the bureaucrat. That, that That's really... If I just it, push this lever, <laughs> this thing will happen the right way, as opposed to... Uh, human events being disorganized. I mean, one of the highlights. Really, go ahead. Yeah, one of the highlights of the, of your telling of, of of that situation is the is the the race of the planes to get to Gorbachev. Right? Who gets there yes. first? Yeah, there's three planes. So once it's because it's true, once the coup plotters decide that they're giving and it's not a, they they're, they're disagreeing with each other, but the defense minister Yazov decides. I'm going to Gorbachev. I know what the inside of a prison's like. I don't want it. Um, even in the vegetarian days, you're still going to have to sit in a prison that's not friendly. And uh, he flies out. Khrushchev's like, well, you're not going without me, so I'm going with you. They're in a plane. Then um, the Russians, not Yeltsin, he's still at the White House, but his uh, vice president, Rutskoy, goes, to, um, goes in a plane and then the Speaker of the Supreme Soviet. This is a side that we don't, you know, it's forgotten about because now it's just antique Soviet dumb or whatever. But the Supreme Soviet's kind of like a mixture of the court and Congress. They should have ruled during this time. Something, because they kept saying Gorbachev's ill. And if Gorbachev's ill, well, the Supreme Soviet's the one in the Constitution that's supposed to do something. But he doesn't schedule a meeting till the next Monday, giving the coup plotters a full week. So everyone knows he's in it. So he flies out to try to tell Gorbachev, I wasn't in it. So you have this kind of dueling planes thing, and you could make a movie, and it'll be like, you know, something like that. But uh, uh, obviously, the, the coup plotters get there first and also block the Russian deputies' planes so that the Russian government guys can't get there. But when they get there, Gorbachev throws them out and then clears the airfield, brings the Russians in, and then goes home with them with Kreuzkopf in chains so that they don't shoot the plane down. So um, so it's uh, um, it's only about uh, uh, the rest of the year that it takes to unravel the Soviet Union. But as I talk about in the podcast, I feel like it's really almost two days. 
because after the coup is, is resolved, it's the interactions between Yeltsin and Gorbachev that happen. And one of them is that Gorbachev starts reinstating people and Yeltsin tells him, these people you're putting back in power were part of the coup. That's the, that's the deputy of the guy that you just arrested. And, and Gorbachev would say like, oh, I'll have to look into that. I don't have the power to fire him. <laughs> and Yeltsin's like, I'm not leaving your office until you do. And I said like in that conversation, the Soviet Union ended and it became Russia. I mean, more or less. It just, the rest of it was just watching the sparks. Gorbachev, who was never popular, loses, gains a little popularity for being a martyr, loses a lot of it in the next couple of days because he just won't implement reforms fast enough that people want. And it, it is now documented that the Communist Party was involved in the coup and did nothing. And Gorbachev will not get rid of leaders of the Communist Party or ban the Communist Party. He calls it a witch hunt. Yeltsin calls him out on it very publicly and it makes Gorbachev look like he's which some people suspect some people still suspect to this day I don't but it's possible that Gorbachev was part of the coup that knew about it at least I figure now Gorbachev was a was a dancer he could he could read situations maybe he said let me sit here and see what happens but uh, in any case uh, he loses a lot of his political power and by December of 1991 he's forced to abdicate in, in effect and end the Soviet Union, and it becomes a, a weaker CIS, which is Russia, Ukraine, uh, Belarus, Kazakhstan, and, and all of these countries that are just in a defense cooperation. Uh, and then you have events later that will figure out, like the Ukraine gives its nuclear warheads over to control of Russia, things like that. Yeah, 1993, sure. uh, Bill Clinton forces the Ukrainians to give up their uh, nuclear weapons to Russia in exchange for a protection pact, which uh, was reminded of <laughs> a, a, a lot. Zelensky kept pointing that out. Um, and I mean, to be fair, you know, they wanted the goal here was we wanted to get it to a few countries that had nuclear weapons. I don't think it ever worked. They didn't want it in. in uh, I mean, Ukraine is corrupt, has always been corrupt. Zelensky was about mm -hmm. to be impeached for corruption right before invasion like you know uh, every single government since 1993 has had some major level of corruption i mean that's and that's just the nature of these former ussr countries they mm -hmm. they once they declared their independence and started walking away from russia it it you know was sort of you had bipolar influences between you know the west and nato and the russian federation and wanting to rebuild that. And that is really kind of still going on. That's what's influencing Ukraine now. Can you talk a little bit about what happens after the Soviet Union falls and then yes, this, very... this uh, competition? I mean, we here are not the type of libertarians that just say it's all NATO's fault. Uh, you know, the reason NATO was expanded was because of Yeltsin and Putin's prosecution of Chechnya, uh, which wanted to break away, and Yeltsin said no, and they went in and committed atrocities, and then all these former Warsaw Pact countries went, ooh, I don't want that. Let's go join NATO. But then, you know, that, that tit-for-tat of constant mistakes between the two, the West and Russia, in these Warsaw Pact states, which are, think, Ukraine, Belarus, you know, up to Estonia, just kind of the buffer between Germany and... Russia have been up for grabs since 1993, 1992. I mean, there's so much there. And another thing I'll throw in just on that point before you lose sight of it is Iraq. I mean, Iraq is a, we didn't, I don't even think at the time I thought about this angle because we weren't thinking about Russia when we were thinking about Saddam Hussein, right? At that time, I was thinking like, God, I hope they don't launch this invasion in, in 2003, to be quite honest with you. I was not a fan um, and um, didn't seem, you know, 2001 Afghanistan, I was right there with everybody. I kind of wanted to be more covert ops and get get bin Laden, et cetera. Like I thought we were having a lot of success with in, in 2001, but then shifting over to Iraq, I never thought about the impact on Vladimir Putin or Russia. And that's where I'm a little... That's about as close as I get to his, any kind of his point of view on things like, okay, I could understand that was, okay, that was wrong, guys. Like, should have let you know we were invading a country, right? We were invading your Mexico, you know, like right next to you, you know, kind of thing. 
Um, maybe you're Guatemala to be accurate, but you know, it, it, it's certainly if someone invaded Guatemala, we would want to know about it. In fact, we have a whole doctrine about that. So you get that, that, that was, uh, uh, the rest of it gets more political and certainly entangled. The thing to talk about after the Soviet Union, I'm glad we were able to touch on it is that because from the real point of view, we've been talking about a lot of the leaders and the coups and in the top level stuff for the average Russian citizen, the, the fall of the Soviet Union was a disaster, and it was devastating. They lost um, the amount of wealth, uh, just savings that was wiped out because they had a horrific inflation and needed to spend real assets on bread. About the only thing that they were able to keep in most cases was their flat because it's kind of a, a state arrangement. So you have this flat, and in, in some cases you have to rent it out uh, that they never, the family that may have never rented their flat out before, then a nice Moscow apartment uh, now has to rent a room because there's just no money to pay for food. Food is um, used to be the cheapest thing in the Soviet Union, and now is the most expensive. Although there was always a, it was always expensive for good, good solid food. So this disaster happens, and it, it after the because you released all of the societal obligations and pensions and and at least reduced all of that and made it ridiculous through inflation Yeah, and then let, let, jacked up prices. Let me just interject, uh, national, <laughs> national divorce people, uh, pay attention. But there's a great book called Who Lost Russia by Peter Conradi. Um, Conradi, it's really good, and it talks a lot about how the Americans in the West actually are the reason that they made it because we propped up Yeltsin and gave the Russian government tons of money. And then sometimes we wouldn't give them the promised aid, either mm -hmm. monetary, usually monetarily, and, and then sometimes not even some of the, the humanitarian aid. But we were feeding Russia and some of these former states for a long time. Uh, and the, the debate in Russia in the Yeltsin years was how close to get to the West. And there were a lot of people who were very anti-Western, obviously. They they had mm -hmm. been part of of that forever, but that... You know, there were a lot of people in Russia who had a lot of goodwill, but I don't think you can stress the importance of how broke and poor the Russians were after the Soviet Union fell. And the hit to their national pride that was taken by having to accept aid from their former enemies, which I think plays a huge part in to Putin's swagger coming along mm -hmm. and... Uh, creating several scenarios to help himself get elected. Uh, Masha Gessen's couple books, The Man Without the Face, uh, is a great one. Um, on, on the rise of Putin and kind of what happened, Gary Kasparov is, is really uh, uh, hi, hi, prescient. I mean, really, when you look at his uh, book, The Winner is Coming. Um, but let's talk about Putin and how he comes to, you know, we can start in 1989 with a KGB agent in East Russia <laughs> yes. or East Germany losing his mind and how that plays into his psychology and you, sort of how he develops. To, yeah, I think you have to understand that East Germany was like their model. They thought it was like, I guess, like here we, depending on your uh, perspective on politics, like there's some people here that talk about Sweden a lot of times. Some people look at Israel like as what's your favorite country that example. And for them, East Germany, a lot of the hardliners in the Soviet Union looked at how well, my God, they can actually uh, listen to everybody's phone calls. We don't have that here yet. The great KGB doesn't have that ability. We can do it in a pinch for an individual, but uh, you know, they have it. They can just listen to any citizen. So Putin was living his dream for a KGB agent to be in East Germany and watching when that nation, um, when the wall came down, people went right after the secret police, the Stasi. And many of them were sources and friends for KGB. And Gorbachev, in their view, did nothing to stop it. Did nothing to stop it. So they were very, very concerned. Uh, and uh, that really drives him. I don't think, see, the other thing to consider is that Putin's East German assignment puts him out of the Soviet Union during the time of perestroika and um, makes it um, so he's not seeing a lot of the changes and the discussions happening in the street. I don't know how much that would have influenced him anyway. So he's coming back right as you know, and began joining the St. Petersburg government. 
um, allegedly a Democrat, but we think still part of the KGB apparatus. Uh, because the Soviet Union is so, um, and because the situation for the average Russian is so difficult, and also there's a lot of crime and instability. You want market share with your new, you have the freedom to start a company in Russia, but you have market share. You, you, if you want market share, you go blow up, you know, throw a grenade in your uh, opponent's office. Now, that's not free market. I mean, um you know, because that it really for a libertarian show, it's a good thing to note. Like we can talk about how it's so much better that they left the Soviet Union. I could go on and on with so many examples. It really is real. In case anybody's wondering, like Soviet Union system really was bad for a lot of reasons. You don't want to do that. OK, I could I could spend hours on that. We won't. But when it opened up free market, it's also not cool to like just let prices go crazy on people who are not used to that. And then also the crime, which creates an instability that is also part of not having a free market. Not just that, but Yeltsin doling out all the state assets, which the state <laughs> owned true, yeah. all the means of production. Yeah. And then he, he doles it out to friends, you know, which it just enables Putin to do the same thing. And then when he comes to power, he immediately starts taking over the largest you know, yep. oil company and putting people in their place. I, I think that when Putin comes to power, there is some hope that he is sort of like Yeltsin. Yeltsin built in eight years a lot of democratic institutions and was a Democrat at heart, even though he was a deeply corrupt person and a flawed person with his drinking. But it took Yeltsin. I mean, this is one thing I think we have to keep in mind as we and maybe we'll end on this. It took Putin the better part of 20 years to erode those democratic reforms that were built in eight. And so everybody who thinks that the sky is falling, democracy is dying in darkness, that it's all over here in America, it's going to be a little bit harder to have America fall than, than one might think. It's probably not as perilous. But I think you also can look at this example and go, okay, you get the right circumstances after a long, many, a couple decades of corruption and hits to uh, institutions and their um, people's belief in these institutions, and you have one bad week and it can all be over. I mean, what parallels yeah. do you think that Americans can take from the story that you tell in this narrative? Well, they made a huge mistake, which is maybe more in the Russian culture of, yeah, there, there's a TV show on about a KGB agent that saved um, the Soviet Union that was very popular right as, you know, Putin is coming to power. And they 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 liked they liked a in that chaos that they had. They liked a KGB agent, really. Uh, one of his key supporters, the former mayor of of um, Leningrad, said that Putin will be a new Stalin. And there's no joke. There's no that's not for funny. That's. That was actually a good slogan. Um, it wasn't the official campaign slogan of Putin, but he's also running against people that probably would have done worse. So that's part of the issue, too. Um, and, you it, you know, what I've really realized doing this, it doesn't matter if it's left. It doesn't matter if it's right. It doesn't matter if you call yourself communist, if you call yourself fascist, if you say you're pure, you're nationalist, you're Chilean, bringing back Chilean history, or you're you're bringing back things for the working man, whatever you've whatever you're going to make statues of, whatever idols you're going to have. Once you lose democracy, it's the same thing. There are some variants. We talked about North Korea. We talked about, um, we talked about, you know, uh, the, the Soviet Union versus that. And then there's things like East Germany, where I thought, I feel the Stasi was, was worse. Um, we talk about the Argentine junta Pinochet or all various forms of how good and effective they are totalitarianism. But the fact is once you lose free press, Freedom of association to form clubs, very important. Um, you know, I'll, I'll throw in religion, although you got to watch, you know, religious groups sometimes, even in the Soviet and now in the Russian, can can help the state in some ways. Um, just freedom to think. If you want to be about religion or not, fine. But freedom to associate, freedom to redress your government. The minute you lose it, you don't really have the ability to listen to people. The problem in America is too many damn people to listen to, including myself. But uh, you know, if we once you lose that, is everything, and it doesn't matter what the people call themselves. Or this is a nice dictator. This is this is a dictator that's designed to to make working standards better or something, yeah, or to to worship the peasant. 
it, it doesn't or people that are just like, hey, we got the guns and we're taking it. For the average person, it doesn't seem to matter much. You you have to maintain your um, your free speech, your free association, your um, checks and balances in government, your judicial system, very important. So union had one, but again, controlled by the other anchors of power. So all these things are important. And um, with Putin, I think uh, there might have been a, I think economically, people in Russia were catching up by about 2000 and things were getting better there. And then the first views of Putin, I think there were some early signals of what he was going to do, but people were still feeling free. They were starting blogs. You know, he has this scene. There's this, 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 in one of the books I've read, um, the red web, really good book, um, about the beginnings of the Russian internet and blog system. You know, he has this conversation where we're going to institute a law for your bloggers. And then he magnanimously shuts that law down. No, it's not a good idea. And everyone's like, Putin's great. He's going to allow us to speak free. It doesn't last long. They do other things to it. So you see the road and we got to watch it. And, you know, and, and it's just, it's always, it's, it's definitely a cautionary tale. I don't want to be cartoonish about Russia or the Soviet Union or make fun of people or insulting to what's a great country, great people, great thought. Some of the best democratic hopes were there in that moment in the, in the Russian White House in 1991. People stood up for democracy, and I wonder if we're as willing to do what those people did in 1991. We should think about that sometimes. But the example is still a cautionary tale. Another great book is uh, Anne Garrel's Putin Country, which she lived in kind of a rural area of Russia. And a kind of a lot of it mirrors, you know, now Putin is, I don't know, Trump's pretty skilled, but Putin's just so good at manipulating people uh, in KGB training. That's KGB training. They didn't just learn judo. Yeah. (laughs) He, and well, just the testosterone's off the charts with this guy. Uh, Reinhold, go ahead. Final. Final, uh, yeah. wrap it up here. What I was, what I was saying is that I, what I got out of this too was the things that kind of got bad after the after the uh, the coup and the fall started happening, and then the the reforms that were being put in weren't working, right? So people, like, we had talked before about how Americans don't think about this. We we get mad when we go to the store and eggs are five dollars <laughs> a dozen, and they were paying like what twenty five, thirty dollars. I mean, if they could get them, right? So things were really rough, and uh, a lot of people in kind of our sphere will try to say we want to collapse the every the economy and everything so we can build it up and be more free. But that rarely ever happens. What we see mm-hmm. here is I think that the people were looking for a firmer hand on the government to make things stable again, to make things less chaotic, to make things easier for them. So they're more willing to go back to a new Stalin of sorts. Like yeah, we I want mean, Stalin, but without all the death camps and everything else, but they want a right. firm hand, I think. They want a firm hand. Um, Milton Friedman said once that, that I don't have any constituency. And I don't think he's ever been proven wrong. And I don't think you ever have an absolute free market. You only get a free market on certain occasions, like you start scaling down regulations when people want a, a quick boost in the economy or something. And I think actually that was the dream that they had in Russia. And they probably should have done it a lot slower, even during the Gorbachev period than they were doing. But there was all these politics behind it. I all, But I also think there is this, oh, we're going to get this big boost in the economy. No one really, you know, most people do when the the minute the economy gets bad or prices go up, they want some kind of control. So it, I don't know that like free market systems are popular per se. They're just like, you know, doing the most towards that end is is we think is right. I mean, the cautionary tale, you don't want people like, well, look, the Soviet Union had the free market because it developed this hundreds of billions dollar black market. The rival of any country in 1989, any GDP in 1989 would be the Soviet black market. But you don't want that. You don't want that extra cost and people having to risk arrest to buy something. Uh, So but it is true. The average American, I tend to think it's like they actually want things taken care of for them. And if the free market thing gets too out of hand, look at the stock market, always linking up stock markets to presidents. What do they have to do with that? You got nothing to do with the stock market. 
Anyway, I just saw I just saw some major, but you know, we'll, we're never going to get through this crisis if we don't have price controls on a global level. I'm like, okay, uh, weeps and Thomas Soul. All right, Bruce, tell us how we can find the podcast, where we can find the podcast, uh, and listen to the series. Sure. Uh, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. It's My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. You can find it on iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, you know, Overcast, wherever you get uh, podcasts. It is one of the more recent. I only have a couple of episodes more recent than the six-part USSR series, Fall of USSR. Also, there's an extra notebook. Uh, some There was so much in the series, I had a whole full notebook to, to talk about in a seventh episode that we added recently. So, you know, if you have a long car ride, um, you know, hey, I'd, I'd be honored. All right. Thanks so much, Bruce. We really appreciate it. Great to be here. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Reinhold. Thanks, Reinhold, for setting this up. And thank you, listener, for tuning in. We ask that you go support Bruce. Check out his podcast. If you liked this, if you learned something, the best thing you can do for any creator that you like, uh, short of giving them money, is to share their work and uh, say thank you. I really enjoyed this and spread the word of mouth. That's uh, how you can support us. That's how you can support Bruce. And like I said, everybody else that you like. All right. Thanks so much. We will see you again here on The Chris Spangle Show.